Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. In this week's show, I'm talking to Hugh Warwick, who is an ecologist and author with a particular passion for hedgehogs. He's a spokesman for the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and has written three books so far about them and a book on the way about beavers. I do this podcast for free and I want to keep it that way. And if you're feeling extra generous today, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help the podcast by donating £3 or more to keep it going. If you could also leave a review, that would be really helpful, really helps podcast out, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, wherever the hell you're listening to this thing, chuck us a review. Today, myself and Hugh waffle about what food you should give hedgehogs, are the houses we put out for them any good, and why they're in such a steep decline. Here's the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Thank you. How are you doing? Um, it, uh, fine, I'm just slightly bleary. I've had uh, um, yesterday was I have another life. Oh, the hedgehog things, and and so I photo. I'm a photographer, and so but I, I you see then think obviously what I am is a wildlife photographer because that would fit into this sort of thing. But no, I have developed a really weird niche, and I am I, I specialize in choirs and, and choirs and and concerts and orchestras and things. Oh, so wow. yesterday I was photographing Magdalen College Choir which I've been, I've been photographing them for about seven years, and then went on to the Oxford Chamber Music Festival and their um, the brilliant performance of Beethoven's Triple Concerto. So, so I'm busily editing photographs at the moment, but not wildlife. Do you do any wildlife photography? I mean, a bit, but it's, it's really, really, really simple. I've got a knackered neck and back, and um, I can't yeah. carry a rucksack. And there's no way I can carry the lenses required to get out into the wild to go and do it. The stuff in my garden, the photographs which I've actually sold most effectively um, have been of a robin I've tamed, which comes to my, yeah, so a couple of times I've tamed robins um, to come to my hand. Um, and obviously when I'm out and about with hedgehogs, I'll, I'll grab pictures of them. And I will, I'll grab pictures, but there are so many amazing wildlife photographers out there. Uh, I can't compete. I mean, there's a guy called Nick Upton who's done loads of work for uh, my last two books um and and you know it's you see the time and care which he puts into doing it and it's a full-time job and, and so i could i could fart around the edges uh but it's just <laughs> yeah there's, there's no competition it's tough isn't it i can sympathize i've got a knackered back so uh there's there's some good little cameras you can get now I'm, i've just actually switched to a mirrorless because yeah i can't handle the big lenses anymore and that that that's helping so there's always That's a way. It's all, it's all on Fuji now. So yeah. I'm, um, I, I have, I have, yeah, gorgeous kit. And, and as long as I'm, as long as it can fit into a bum bag, I'm okay. Yeah. So good, good rule of life, isn't it? We're obviously going to waffle about hedgehogs today. So we should probably start at the beginning. So what, what fascinates you so much about them? Why, why hedgehogs? It's an accident. It's not a deliberate thing. I didn't decide uh, um, at some point in, in the distant past that I'm now going to dedicate my life to hedgehogs. But there was, I was doing my degree at Leicester Polytechnic um, way, way, way back in the dark ages. It was, I have to explain when I'm lecturing students now. When I was at Leicester Polytechnic, there was a computer room and, and there was like six nerds in the entire Polytechnic who would book access to use the computer room. The rest of us didn't know one end of a computer. Anyway, so it was that sort of long ago. 
And um, and so I was doing doing my degree and the, my supervisor for the sort of third year project bit, he was, I think, fed up with me. He just basically offered me the opportunity to do a um, to do the the honors project. It was, there's an option of going to Orkney, a good long way away. And um, and I just thought it sounded fascinating because most students were being offered the ideas of doing uh, projects which you know, they're done each year just to give the students something to do. You know, it's the same thing. And this was brand new. This was the Bird Observatory on North Ronaldsey had noticed that there'd been from being no hedgehogs to being suddenly loads of hedgehogs. And at the same time, Arctic Tern breeding success had gone from being really great to really low. And, and so there was this possibility that the um, arrival of hedgehogs uh, uh, was causing the problem. The hedgehogs had been imported by the postman in 1974 because um, I think I've heard I, that. He, yeah, he'd heard he'd heard on the um, he'd heard on 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 the on the and the TV I think it was that hedgehogs are really good for controlling you know, slugs and snails in your garden, and that if if you haven't got any hedgehogs, find somewhere with lots of hedgehogs and pop some in your garden. So. Yeah, obviously that was probably not meant to be a sort of a start of rampant exportation of hedgehogs to islands without hedgehogs. Uh, but um, yes, he, he, he did that, went to visit his aunt in Aberdeen and um, came back with a couple of hedgehogs and uh, off they went. And so it was, so that was the beginning of it and, and it was properly fascinating. Uh, and it's really opened my eyes to the idea of ecology. See, I've Studying, just looking at animals is, is wonderful. I've always loved doing that. But what really has been my fascination is looking at the interaction between animals and environment, the, the ecosystem. And so I, that, that bit of it. So how was it that these hedgehogs were having this sort of impact? Were they really having that sort of impact? And I, mean, I went back in the early 90s to repeat the work and, and I kept looking at what other things had changed. Masses of things changed alongside the um, hedgehogs uh, arriving on the island. Uh, you know, farming practices had changed. The uh, beginning of the warming of the oceans had changed. And the probably the krill that the sand eel, sand eels were eating was a little bit further off the krill. I mean, plankton of some sort, whatever the small little beasties in the sea, you know, the, 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 the sand eels were eating was moving a little bit further away to cooler water. And therefore the Arctic terns were flying further to get the food. Therefore, the Arctic terns were spending longer away from the nest, which meant they were more open to predation from um, Arctic skewers. And the Arctic skewers were getting less sand eels because all they were doing was mobbing the Arctic terns when they came back in, the, the kleptoparasitism being very effective up there. And so the Arctic skewers were then taking. So all of these things, everything would change. And hedgehogs were definitely part of it. And, and in fact, people were part of it. And so this, yeah, so this started it. And then I, was doing bits and pieces. Uh, I went down to Dungeon Nest to look for hedgehogs because Pat Morris, the, the wonderful Pat Morris, who, who's sort of the godfather of the yeah, hedgehogs. Yeah, I've, I've met Pat before, yeah. Um, so he he had sort of said, he'd found a paper which suggested in the 1950s that black-headed uh, black gull um, um, nests were being depredated by hedgehogs. So down on Dungeon Nest, so he suggested I go and have a snoop around Dungeon Nest. I didn't get to uh, see any hedgehogs, but I got to meet Derek Jarman, which actually goes down as a big tick. Um, and I uh, had, a, had a fantastic adventure down there. Then I ended up radio tracking hedgehogs. And that's where things sort of changed because I was radio tracking hedgehogs and then had a moment nose to nose on a Devon lane with Nigel, um, who, who wasn't a hedgehog. And um, I mean, you, when you're alone and 
radio tracking species. You, you'll often name your animals if you're sensible. I mean, there are those very, very uh, straight-laced and rather boring ecologists who just rely on code numbers, but no, these animals deserve a name. And, um, and uh, so Min, Nigel, nose to nose. And I just had a moment of inspiration. It was when we were kind of nose to nose on the lane and we made eye contact and he noticed me didn't sort of exactly say hi but there was a moment of connection in that he was looking at me that was different yeah it wasn't just me looking at him he was looking at me he decided I smelt enough like a hedgehog I, I was living in a caravan without any washing facilities um uh, for for a month or so and uh, and and decided just to toddle off on his own and it was just a moment then and I suddenly thought no there's something special with this yeah you can get nose to nose with an animal and and everything can change they're definitely one of those creatures that captures the the British public's imaginations and whether it's like, uh, is it Tiggy Wink or well, Twiggy Wink or whatever, the, the kind of famous hedgehog or whatever it's called. Um, Mrs. Tiggy, what, what, Mrs. Tiggy Winkle, sorry. Yeah, come on. I mean, the, yeah, this is like the Beatrix Potter. This is this is where it. the hedgehog changed. Um, <laughs> and, and Beatrix Potter, she transformed Eliza Hedgehogs at the beginning of the 20th century. Up until that moment, and I have got, uh, um, um, I have got, stacks and stacks of hedgehog books, children's books about hedgehogs. Up until Mrs. Tiggywinkle, most stories about hedgehogs had the hedgehog as an animal of portent or doom. It was something which you were kind of suspicious about. It was a nocturnal secretive animal. It was covered in prickles. It disappeared for half the year. Mrs. Tiggywinkle transformed that. So from then, nearly every single story you'll find, in fact, I think every story I found, has the hedgehog uh, as a creature of, of, at the very least, they're benign. Uh, yeah. But normally they are just extremely jolly, happy and, and engaging. Yeah, that just shows me being an uncultured heathen that I am really, um, <laughs> barely picking things up. So what, what's your favourite facts about hedgehogs that people might not know then? Is there something that you found out for all your research and, and studies and you're like, actually, that's bloody amazing, but people might not know? Well, that would have been really nice to get forewarning of a question about that. Um, OK, so <laughs> the taxonomists in their great wisdom have shifted hedgehogs from insectivora uh, to Eulipatiflon or Eulipatifla. And, um, and Eulipatifla, uh, which I couldn't even pronounce the first sort of couple of days I was trying to work it out. Also, you, you write a book, a hedgehog's insectivore, insectivore, and then suddenly next time you write a book or you're updating it, it's just, anyway, bloody taxonomists. <laughs> um, so, you, okay, they are Eulipatiflons and Eulipatiflon means truly fat and blind. Right. <laughs> and it's nothing to do with their appearance. Um, it's to do with the, 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 the cecum, their 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 guts. Um, ah, okay. it, it's, uh, so yeah, taxonomists like to go for detail. Yeah, of course yeah, they do. Not one you'll know. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no, definitely. And many people will know that hedgehogs are in decline, and I'm sure there's a cocktail of reasons. But why why are our hedgehogs in decline then? Well, um, us basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the cocktail. Uh, yeah. Humanity, yeah. that wonderful cocktail. Uh, so, it's if you look at the decline of hedgehogs, and it's really difficult doing this right now. I, I should have said, let's wait for like a month or so, because uh, um, I work with the British Hedgehog Preservation Society, uh, and also we work with the People's Trust for Endangered Species, and together we run a campaign called Hedgehog Street, and each three years, roughly, we produce the State of Britain's Hedgehogs Report. And, um, and the next one is due out, I think at, we should be ready by the beginning of November. Um, so I don't know the uh, 
this might be out then actually because it won't it won't be out for a few weeks so it might coincide no, no, i don't nicely. know the answer i don't know the answer that's the trouble oh so um <laughs> so this is the thing I, I think they deliberately keep the um i think they deliberately keep the uh, um uh, data away from me in case I, I go on air and start speaking inappropriately uh and giving giving the answers to this thing which is going to be press released when it comes out um so sorry my wife has just brought me water because i suddenly forgot that that was really helpful um and um so so what i'm going to tell you now is based on the data up until 2018 and uh, um that 2018 report showed a 30 percent decline in hedgehogs from the year 2000 to 2018 in urban areas and a 50 percent decline in rural areas um the urban population had declined had leveled off from the 2015 report which is quite exciting. And actually, that's where we have invested pretty much all of our efforts at trying to get changes made. Um, rural populations are still in freefall. I do not know what the next lot of data are going to show. Um, I mean, I'm, yes, I'm, it's sort of really, really exciting. I'm more excited by uh, this scientific report than certainly I am, um, uh, or was about the, the sort of emergence of a James Bond movie. Yeah, this, that is right up there. And I'm really yeah. keen to see James Bond movie. But, you know, this hedgehog data, it's like, it'll change my world or, or not. We'll see. Um, so the, the population decline is real. Um, Mammal Society did a review um, a few years ago, and they estimated a sort of 66% decline since the mid-1990s, which sort of fits into what we think. We, we don't have numbers. We don't say there's X number of hedgehogs and now there's Y, we, we, yeah. because actually quite difficult to to count uh but what we have is a number of citizen science surveys which um people's trust for endangered species and the bto run which um give us data over a long period of time and uh, that's meant that we can look at things and see how it changes hedgehogs um as cute as they are haven't got any clever uh, crossing roads and so when you have roads with the similar amounts of traffic as they do and, and you can account for increased number of cars um you will get the same proportion of hedgehogs in the population being killed on those roads, which means when you've got no hedgehogs being killed at all, it probably means on a certain set of roads uh, that there are no hedgehogs there at all. So, so it's I actually have, a good thing to see the odd squashed one then, as bad as that sounds. It's, it's, it's terrible, but yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I get quite excited by squashed hedgehogs. In fact, I've, I've mentioned this before, and um, a while, not that long ago, actually, uh, I got home um, from being out with the dog, and as I came up the uh, up the sort of the drive area, uh, um, I'd noticed a bad smell, and I was thinking the drains had um, kicked off something wrong. And um, so I was going inside, thinking, "Oh God, I've got to sort something out." And I noticed a little piece of paper stuck through the door, and it was a, a note uh, from an elderly friend of mine who lives on the same housing estate, and um, and she had written written a nice little note saying, "Dear Hugh." Um, I, I found this. Uh, um, I found this, and I thought you'd be interested. I've left it in the drive, and um, and <laughs> so I went outside, and she had found um, roadkill hedgehog. Lovely. Okay. But um, this wasn't just like your freshly killed roadkill hedgehog. Ooh, we could bury that. There may be a skull attached to it, which we could find later. That'd be good. No, no. This was roadkill hedgehog that was still, well, I say still moving, was now reanimated by the great mass of maggots inside the shopping bag in which it was kept on my drive. And it was, it, it was just the most horrendous stench. <laughs> she, 
this dear, dear friend, had scooped up this hideous, decaying mass of hedgehog into a plastic bag, carried it around the estate and left it for me. And, and you know, if it had been somebody who didn't like me, I would have taken it as a direct assault. But no, no, this was meant caringly and lovingly. So, yeah, I am interested in dead hedgehogs, but really not individually oh. and in person. Theoretically, not, really fascinating. Um, not so, that so, dead. <laughs> not that dead, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so seeing a dead hedgehog means that there must be some hedgehogs around, unless, of course, that is the last hedgehog. I should add, though, in terms of population decline, I have done over the years hundreds of talks to women's institute groups, to towns, women's guild groups, to the University of the Third Age, probus groups, gardening clubs, the works. And, and certainly when I started doing them, um, they were all much, much older than me. But I'm kind of catching up now with a lot of these groups, which is a shame. Uh, but it was a really interesting opportunity to talk about what people remembered from their childhood. And fascinating you know the difference in terms of the numbers of hedgehogs that people used to see and if and most people not everybody people move around the country they move to areas with hedgehogs uh, but in most people you start the conversation and they will remember times when it was a common thing to see hedgehogs in your garden at night and now it is a rare thing unless you're one of those lucky people uh, um, who, who keep sending me pictures and just making me more and more jealous about the hedgehogs they see <laughs> i think it's not unreasonable and this i should this is a guess based on anecdotal evidence. It's, 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 not, um, uh, uh, it's not as robust as the work we've been doing with Hedgehog Street. I would guess that we've lost between 90 and 95% of the hedgehogs in the United Kingdom since the end of the Second World War. Wow, that's quite a worrying amount. That's a, a properly big population declines, which is, yeah, therefore it's worth paying attention to. I mean, they're now shifted across to being vulnerable on the red list. Um, and so, yeah, they, we recognize uh, uh, the substantive problem. Unfortunately, um, as you're probably well aware, the, the, the quinquennial review of, of um, wildlife legislation is ongoing at the moment, and, and there's this massive effort being put ahead by government. We're going to build back better uh, because we've got you know, Bozo Boris going in there with his bulldozer and his high-vis jacket, carrying not a fig for what he squashes. And that is really where it's going with this and trying to remove you know, whilst we're trying to argue to get the hedgehog increased protection under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, we now find that actually this review is looking at removing a whole bunch of, of protection to a whole host of other mammals. And um, so, yes, I, I become moderately grumpy about that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of ecologists haven't they? We visit great crested newts would be stripped and bats would be stripped and pretty much anything. Uh, I think the only thing left was a frog. And that's about it. Uh, pool frogs, the only <laughs> thing that would be left for protection. And there's only one site in Norfolk with them. So apart from that, everything would be um, stripped. So, yeah. Yeah, no, so yeah. It, it, is, it is kind of absurd. Um, and at the same time, I'm campaigning in my own way to get the extra protection for hedgehogs and managing bizarrely to get some, some footing on it. And it, it's sort of a, there is a will out there and from developers as well as from members of the public to actually do good things for for hedgehogs um yeah. but it's 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 the the absurdity of, of a government hell bent on destruction is just uh, sickening yeah i couldn't agree with you more and it's perhaps no surprise then that people obviously want to help hedgehogs and a lot of people feed them and they have these houses so i just wanted to to kind of check with you because you read on and maybe online is the worst place to check because one website will say <laughs> one thing Another website will say another thing. So what, what should you feed them? I'll start with, because I've seen everything from dedicated hedgehog food to mealworms to you only can give them dry food. You can only give them wet food. So Hugh, what do we feed hedgehogs? 
so what you feed hedgehogs is the wild animals that you've got in your garden because you've made your garden wildlife friendly. Um, that's what you put. Supplementary food, well, um, um, by all means do. There are a lot of people who speak extremely authoritatively about what is right for hedgehogs. And um, a lot of people who have very little evidence, proper empirical evidence as to what is good and what is not good for hedgehogs. A lot of people make very bold statements about what is right and what is wrong. And then, and this is the delight of your research tool of the internet, spend every spare minute of their time, and a lot of them have a lot of time, shouting at people who possibly have used the wrong colored bowl because it might just upset <laughs> the hedgehog. You know, there is such a degree of instant outrage at any seeming transgression of a bunch of ever-changing rules made by a bunch of people who cannot actually agree amongst themselves as to what is the right way forward as to make this thing absurd and ridiculous. And it does put people off, it puts people off a great deal. There's a bunch of the, I mean, so some of the hedgehog rescuers out there are absolutely stunning. And there are some who are just hell bent on generating outrage and generating attention because then they use that as a fundraising device. Um, and so I'm, I have been, I've been caught up with, with this, there's some absolute uh, um, Fruit Loops out there uh, who've been <laughs> shouting at me because I had the temerity to point out that hedgehogs eat slugs. Okay, yeah. Okay, so we know hedgehogs eat slugs, eat slugs because, because they do. Um, we know that hedgehogs eat slugs because uh, um, they, they've evolved parasites which, which circulate between the hedgehog and the slug that's happened over a very long period of time. So we know they do. Um, slugs may not be the principal choice of food for a hedgehog when given a plate of uh, um, you know, gorgeous pedigree chum or whatever it might be, or kitten biscuits because it must be soft or hard, um, uh, um, or a slug. They will go for the, the nice easy stuff rather than the slime coated stuff. Uh, but now I've had people shouting at me. Um, and you know, just because I suggested hedgehogs eat slugs. And again, but this, Obviously, I've seen healthy hedgehogs out there eating slugs. And it's because you know, well-meaning people have added two and two together and made 73. Um, and it, it's slugs carry, can carry, some species of slugs can carry a parasite which can give hedgehogs lungworm. Yes, yeah. So we know that, that's a fact. Um, that uh, the, the, there are certain species of lungworm which are hedgehog specific and they, they go through this thing, uh, a cycle. So therefore they've evolved together, therefore they've been eating slugs for a very long time. So therefore the extrapolation from that is, if at any point you tell members of the public that hedgehogs eat slugs, um, they will therefore not feed hedgehogs if they've got slugs in their garden and that they will, I don't know, collect slugs up and force feed hedgehog slugs or, or whatever. I mean, head, you know, it's, it's nonsense. It, 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 it's so yes hedgehogs can get lungworm and they will get that from eating slugs uh but to argue with with absolute zero evidence that hedgehogs don't eat slugs uh, unless of course they're starving and on the brink of death already is complete nonsense so this is why the whole area is a bit frustrating um so in terms of what should hedgehogs eat well hedgehogs are carnivores um, um hedgehogs uh, will will eat will eat meat, they'll eat a whole bunch of stuff. They will tend to eat what's in front of them unless they really don't like it, unless there's been a sudden sort of, we've had kitten biscuits, I've had complaints. People putting out new model Tesco's kitten biscuits and, and the hedgehogs don't like the new version, but they like the old version. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, for God's sake. 
focus on making your garden a rich place for wildlife, full of, of, of you know, caterpillars and earwigs and worms and all sorts of invertebrates, please do that. And then really, really, if you must, put out a little bit of food for hedgehogs too. It's um, it, it just would be lovely to have an entire housing estate dedicated to wildlife, and then you wouldn't need to put out any supplementary food. Um, oh. but, yeah, obviously, there isn't an entire estate like that, so people do. The so, reality is, as well, you're probably just feeding the local cats. Well, not if you're clever. Okay. Um, so the, you, can, you can develop a hedgehog feeding station, which actually will mitigate against most cats. I mean, some are really crafty. Um, but hedgehog, I mean, you can look online for hedgehog feeding stations. There are quite a you know, bunch of clever designs out there, but an upturned box, which stops birds getting at it first thing in the morning. And, and if you put a sort of partition into the box so that a, a paw can't be reached into the box to pull the food out, little 13 centimeter hole for the hedgehogs to do that. And if you put, um, if you sort of have a hole in the bottom, you know, the corner of the box, and you kind of make a tunnel going in and coming round, that also means that if a rat comes in, the rat would then find itself in a corner um, to eat. And actually in a new situation, rats will tend not to linger too long in a corner. They will, it's just, they would prefer not to be trapped. So uh, okay. they will, they, it doesn't stop rats eating it, but it reduces it. You put a brick on top, stop foxes knocking it over. Um, and you can you know, not rely on it just being hedgehogs, but then borrow your neighbor's trail camera and see who is coming to eat it. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, there is a value to it, but um, it's just you know, the the absurdity of the outrage. Um, yeah. So and, uh, really, the best thing is uh, make sure that your wild, your garden is as wildlife friendly, which is going to encourage lots of natural food and maybe a bit of supplementary food, but not don't do it as to for them to rely on basically. Um, yeah. I mean, the hedgehogs won't rely because the hedgehogs. You know, people tell me about their hedgehog. Yeah, and, um, and and then they discover that their hedgehog is is nine different hedgehogs. Yeah, you know, it, it's a um, they, they are entirely promiscuous. Yeah, um, I mean some of them, some hedgehogs will build up a routine and will keep coming back, but they aren't just relying on any one garden. They can't. I mean, if you look at how far hedgehogs move, um, on average, uh, uh, male hedgehogs will move two kilometers a night, and yeah, yeah they'll shift between twenty different gardens. Um, so you may love your hedgehog and it may come at eight o'clock every night, but it may be seven different hedgehogs um, and or it may just be going off and visiting a whole bunch of other gardens, too. Right. OK, they're going to be lots of people think, blowing people's minds now. They think, oh, there's, there's <laughs> Hank, Hank the hedgehog. And nope, there's about seven. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's also Henrietta the hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, of course, is hedgehog houses, which is kind of filtered into garden centres now. And I, I think 10 years ago, I'd have been hard pushed to find a hedgehog house <laughs> now. They're everywhere and they're almost quite in vogue. So I wonder, are they any good or is it just a sort of uh, marketing thing? Is, is a hedgehog house useful for hedgehogs? Okay, so I have a degree of prejudice about this. Um, again, it goes back to exactly the same thing I said about the food. If you've got a wildlife friendly garden, you don't need a hedgehog house. Okay, you've, you've got a, a compost heap, you've got a leaf pile, you've got a log pile, you've left some brambles, all of these things. What a hedgehog needs is a structure into which to bring vegetation. And then they roll around in vegetation, the spines comb the leaves into a nice layered shape. They create their gorgeous uh, hibernacula. But um, um, actually, if you've got a fairly neat garden, if for whatever reason you're having a conflict with um, you know, the person you share a house with who wants a neat garden, a hedgehog house is a very good thing. If you're in rented accommodation and you have got to maintain your garden a certain way, a hedgehog house is a very good idea. If you just want to increase the number of options a hedgehog's got, a hedgehog house is a good idea. But duh, do they work? Uh, and so a few years ago, uh, the Hedgehog Street campaign ran the Hedgehog Housing Census, and I firmly predicted 
that what the hedgehog housing census would show is that uh, um, people go out and buy hedgehog houses because um, uh, they're driven by the overwhelming guilt um, at their participation in the destruction of our ecosystem and their participation in this, this industrialized capitalism, uh, which is destroying life on earth. And so to assuage that guilt, they'll buy a hedgehog house. Um, and then the hedgehogs are just gonna go, yeah, I'm not interested in that and, and, and snuffle off into the bushes. Um, I, I was wrong. Um, you know, the hedgehog houses were used considerably. Um, so the surveys that people did, uh, rather fascinatingly, however, homemade hedgehog houses were used more often than shop-bought hedgehog houses. Oh, uh, okay. And I have a theory about that, which I think bears up, in that you will buy a hedgehog house for your uncle because they once expressed an interest in hedgehogs and you just don't know what to get them for Christmas. So you get them a hedgehog house and they stick a hedgehog house in the garden and, and so be it. However, you are there with, uh, with your kids uh, and you drag them out of bed and because and, you've seen a hedgehog in the garden and you show them the hedgehog. And, and so they're going, we must help the hedgehog. What can we do? We'll build a hedgehog house. So you have a little fan project. You build a hedgehog house. You stick it in the garden because you've seen a hedgehog. Um, and the hedge so therefore, that's my reasoning behind oh, that. Is that, that makes sense. One yeah. as, as a sort of reaction to... Um, um, actually having seen a hedgehog. Um, but no, remarkably, they, they, they worked. They, they, uh, we imagined it was better to have them not facing north just because you know, cold winds blow, but it didn't seem to make a difference. Um, it certainly is best if they're against an edge and it seems best if they're against an edge and under some sort of bush or vegetation. Um, but it didn't seem to make a lot of difference how close they were to, uh, to the house. Didn't make a difference if you had dogs. Um, or foxes visiting the garden either. So it was, it, it, it's on the Hedgehog Street site, there's the, the report of the Hedgehog Housing Centres. Um, yes, there is a lot of effort put into uh, uh, I'm trying to persuade people who care about something to part money to be seen to care more about it, yes. So basically it's not gonna hurt, is it's is the, the short and curlies of it, like, you know. So food isn't gonna hurt, a hedgehog house isn't gonna hurt. No. The thing which will hurt is if you don't put out water. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so shallow, I mean, obviously, I, I say that, and it's just started pouring a rain. Um, but you know, <laughs> so during during the summer, uh, um, shallow dishes of water, absolutely crucial. And I obviously, you know, instinctively that hedgehogs need to drink because you know, all wildlife needs this access to water. But I was absolutely fascinated by watching, because I get sent an awful lot of videos um, of, of various uh, bits of hedgehog behavior. And um, in this one, there was, it was a bit of video of a hedgehog coming up to a, uh, a water bowl and normally it's 10 second clips on your trail camera this was a, uh, a, a security camera the hedgehog drank for over two minutes wow and it just it was like yeah they, they do need water so it's a really that's a really really crucial thing if you're going to think of anything to do if you're worried about upsetting um the the, the outrage triggers uh put out water i mean yeah just put out water can't deny everything needs water doesn't it and you you mentioned it at the beginning and i'm glad you did so we can bring it back up now is uh hedgehogs finding their way to places they shouldn't because one of the sadly ironic things is that they're dare i say invasive in some parts of the world but even in the uk i know i went to coal recently in the in the hebrides and there were hedgehogs there and i don't think they're meant to be there either so it's it is weird that they've kind of ended up in in other parts of the world and a potential problem i mean coal i don't know about coal actually um i've um it's so after I did the North Ronaldsey work on hedgehogs in the mid 80s and then back in 91, 
Um, the I, then in in two thousand and three, if you remember back, there was the launch of the cull of hedgehogs and the Uists in the Outer Hebrides. Um, oh, yeah. And so the hedgehogs there had been introduced into South Uist and had gradually sort of spread up through South Uist, Ben Beckula, and were touching on North Uist. And there was a uh, um, it was a, I mean, I, it's, it's an entire chapter of a book's worth of material there, so I won't go into it now. I do a full lecture on this, but it's um, the hedgehog's arrival was, was definitely correlated with a decrease in the breeding success of ground nesting birds. And if you know the Outer Hebrides or the Uists in particular, this is where you've got the Machar, this amazing, sandy, biodiverse, rich uh, 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 lowland area. And um, uh, vast numbers of wading birds just nest longer. Internationally important populations of wading birds. And uh, the arrival of the hedgehog definitely correlated with a decline in their success. Um, and so over the years, a number of studies have been done which showed this. And then they started killing the hedgehogs. I went up there to report on it actually, because I presumed that this was, it was the RSPB were killing the hedgehogs along with the SNH, who, well, Nat Scott now, but, um, and, uh, and the, the Scottish uh, uh, government. And um, they, I assumed it was being done because there'd been no alternative found. Um, and uh, when I got there, I actually discovered that uh, um, a bunch of numpties were involved with making the decision to kill the hedgehogs. And I got very agitated and it got involved with campaigning to, to stop them being killed. You can move them off the island, it's fine. Um, uh, and uh, uh, somebody, uh, somebody had written a report arguing that um, uh, that, that the only humane way to, to deal with the hedgehogs was to kill them. Uh, and uh, um, interestingly, the guy happened to run the Humane Slaughter Association. I just think maybe... Uh, yeah. Conflict of interest, uh, uh, perhaps. Yeah, well, just... <laughs> um, I, uh, so I got involved with the campaign to stop it. I ended up doing the research which showed you can uh, um, translocate hedgehogs and it's fine. And, and we got them to stop killing the hedgehogs. But they did then move to change the law. So it's now illegal to release hedgehogs on islands which don't have hedgehogs, which is okay. common bloody sense. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's so, yes, I mean, I, I love hedgehogs dearly, but if they are then going to cause a, a localized or regional you know, important extinctions, then, yeah, then we've got to remove them. So are they gone from US now? <laughs> well, you've got a funny sense of humor. <laughs> Oh, no, of course no, not. No, no, okay. no. Um, no it, it's rather unfortunate. Um, you see, the uh, back in 2003, they started killing them, and there's a bunch of people rescuing them as well and, um, and removing them from the islands. So it's a bit of a, a little hullabaloo. And right. by 2007, they'd stopped killing them, and everybody was rescuing hedgehogs, moving them off the island. Um, and, and right at the beginning, we had us, us a lot of bunny huggers, um, which included a bunch of you know, proper, proper, you know, academics, I should say, um, had suggested, why don't you use fencing? Oh, don't be ridiculous, you can't use fencing. Uh, anyway, I think they're now beginning to look at the idea of fencing. Um, but it was um, the, yeah, I think North Uist is pretty much clear. Um, and then, so basically, because that's where there were least hedgehogs, and then moved down, clear Bembecula, and then start on South Uist. And okay. um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that would be, that's the, the way that they're approaching it. But unfortunately, due to a whole bunch of problems, loss of funding, um, Brexit, COVID, everything else, there are probably as many hedgehogs on the Uists now as there were when this started. Wow. So it's kind of just bounced straight back up then. Well, I mean, yeah, that's over you know, 10 years or so. It's yeah. Just, if you don't, if you, if you, if you don't actually get rid of the hedgehogs, they're going to keep breeding. Yeah, they're going to do what they're going to do, aren't they? Because is it New Zealand and Australia? I think we've, we've, we've plumped them there. New Zealand, is it? Yes, yeah, so we've plumped them there as well. So they've kind of followed us. Um, well, they didn't have much well, choice, that, really. 
No, no, the, the hedgehogs in New Zealand were very specifically um, asked for. So the colonists, colonialists oh. arrived in New Zealand and they looked around the place going, this is really gorgeous. But you know what, we're, low, we're missing something. And so they wrote back to the UK and said, could you send some hedgehogs, please? And because uh, they were lonely and they sent hedgehogs. And for a long time, they were considered to be the most benign of all of these animals that were exported out there. Uh, but now it's being recognized they are totally linked in with, with uh, the, the killing of um, um, it, both invertebrates and vertebrates. So, so some of the skinks uh, um, uh, being really hammered by it. And also, obviously, all the birds nest on the ground. And or yeah. not, not nest, all nest on the ground, but they all uh, you know, flightless birds. And you've got a whole bunch of um, uh, eggs at their disposal as well. So, yeah, not so. Um... It kind of muddles the thoughts of Miss Tiggywinkle then when they're murdering all these endangered animals abroad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the delightful thing is, is if, if ecology was simple, they'd probably let astrophysicists do it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, actually, ecology is really tough and, and you need a particular sort of metal to be doing this um, out there, freezing your nuts off you know, in, in the mud and the rain, living in a caravan with a standpipe in the field for washing. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get that if you're doing astrophysics. <laughs> and I'd hate to just mention hedgehogs because you're not a one-trick pony. So we are going to talk about something else as well, which is you've got a book coming out uh, soon on beavers, haven't you? I do. I'm a, certainly, in fact, I can do the subtle reveal. Um, Go on, then. This is, I, know, I know this is largely going to be uh, audio, but yeah. um, for the listeners at home, uh, I'm now holding up a delightful thing called the Beaver Book. Um, uh, uh, What's it about? Well, this one is all about water bowls. Um, no, it's <laughs> so I say that. Um, so last year, I was a graphic, this wonderful publishers, uh, um, they asked me to do the hedgehog book, which is interestingly uh, about hedgehogs. And there was a, a, a cock up at the printers and a bunch of them went out with a recipe book inside with a hedgehog cover, but not hedgehog recipes, but just oh. a normal recipe. Yeah, that, that would okay. be really tasteless. Um, so so no, the, the beaver book is fun. I mean, I actually... This is, I mean, nobody's going to be listening, and so it's okay. But just don't tell the hedgehogs. I, okay. I, I, I love, kind of love all wildlife, really. I really, really do. I mean, I've you know, been off doing uh, um, exotic safaris in exotic places um, and seen all that stuff. That's fantastic. I've had actually the best wildlife moments um, of my life in my garden with a robin that I've tamed to feed from my hand. You know, there's, I love wildlife. I love nature, uh, and um, uh, but the hedgehogs are a really effective way of talking about really big, complex ecological issues. It is sort of quite easy to to, to put people off. Um, you sort of stride into a room and start talking about um, yeah, the transport infrastructure, habitat fragmentation, the way we grow our food, uh, climate change, etc. But if you go start walk into a room and um, and uh, um, chat about hedgehogs. Um, then people will listen. Uh, and, and then obviously you can talk about all of those things as well. And again, I mean, the beaver is as fascinating a creature. I mean, it has, the thing about the hedgehog is nobody really has a problem with hedgehogs. Every time there's a vote or a poll, the hedgehog wins the nation's favorite nature icon and favorite animal, favorite mammal. Um, but, but the beaver does wind up some people, mainly people who simply don't know uh, the reality of, of a beaver. Um, I mean, the, the, the reality is that if you have beavers in a waterway, there are more fish. They don't eat fish, please. They don't eat fish. And C.S. Bloody Lewis, I mean, what's, what, what, what do you go and do that for? Um, I mean, just, just having a fish-eating bloody beaver in the, the wardrobe thing. Um, um, it was just, just no. Yeah, so they're, they're herbivores. And, um, and so the 
they, yeah, they create an ecosystem, they create a more varied ecosystem, they create this, this patchwork landscape, they create a messy landscape, which is just the best thing. And that allows a whole host of other wildlife to be able to flourish too. And so, no, the beaver is, I'm a big fan of the beaver. Um, and it's, it also means that, that my stand-up routine has now just suddenly got a whole <laughs> bunch more a uh, whole bunch more uh, material. Um, Innuendo just, bingo. Oh, you, so I've just been sent the, the link to the reading of um, the apparently uh, children's book, um, uh, Brenda's Beaver Needs a Barber. Um, and it's, I mean, I just, I recommend, it's not quite, yeah, it's suitable for work, actually, because okay. it's just innuendo. Uh, but yeah, Brenda's Beaver Needs a Barber. There's this American woman reading it. She's in isolation. She's She's been doing the whole COVID isolation thing. And she just reads this book. And her laugh is, it's five minutes of your life you will not regret spending on YouTube. Um, so it, you know, obviously, there's a lot of silliness around it. But the main thing is, as a rewilding tool, as an ecosystem engineer, as a way of actually creating an enormous amount of change, uh, there is really little that can compare with the beaver. And and it's since I've finished the book, I mean, every week there's new stories. It, it was it was Derbyshire last week. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's yeah, not far from where I live. Um, and it was just like, could you just give me a chance to at least get the book out? I mean, it just so sort of feel that I sort of wrote all the projects up to date by the time I got the you know, finished the book in June. And it's just suddenly more and more and more happening. Um, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, I was lucky to go up to um, the, uh, to Aylith up in, um, oh, where I, is it? Scotland, it was the, the, the Banff estate. And that, they, they'd uh, introduced beavers there uh, into a, an enclosed area. And I got to see the beavers and the transformation to this once agricultural estate. Um, absolutely stunning and that was that was many years ago and then um, last couple of summers I've been down with uh, the wonderful Derek Gow um, uh, down on his uh, his Coombs Head rewilding project uh, um, down uh, north of north of Dartmoor and um, that place is absolutely stunning I mean if you if you have if you have the opportunity to take a break ever um, and you want to these shepherd's huts gorgeous shepherd's huts and you sort of wake up in the morning and you look out and You've got a wild boar, a buffalo, goodness knows what going on out there. Take a little walk around the corner. You've got wild cats. You've got beavers. Um, when I was camping there uh, this summer, I, I, Derek had just set up pitch your tent where you were last time. And um, put my head out the corner of it in the morning and look around the corner and find we'd camped right next to the links. It was like, this place is awesome. Um, so it's kind of the future. There's, we, we, we managed to destroy so much and clear so much off. And then piece by piece by piece, little bits are being replaced. Um, whether it's the, the, you know, the red kites or the beavers, things are coming back. And in moments of extreme uh, um, frustration and upset and misery about the state of the world, you look at these little moments and you go, however hard that priapic marshmallow tries to destroy our countryside, Boris is not going to get rid of the red kites. He's not going to get rid of the beavers. You know, these things are here to stay. And if we carry on fighting the corner for good ecological, scientifically based conservation, we can we can make big transformations. So you're hopeful for their return then in terms, and I'm not on about like just these big gated community of beavers. I mean, gates gone out to do their own thing. You're hopeful that we'll get them back at some point. Well, you, you know, they're already out there. Yeah. yeah, no, I know there's some in, in the mean, River Otter, probably, and, uh, and I know there's there. some on the in Scotland on the Tay, the, the the official ones, and I'm sure there are other yeah, unofficial there, there ones. Are un, 
awful lot of unofficial beavers out there. I mean, I think one's turned up on the outskirts of Bristol recently. You know, so there's, and it, it's, there, and they've been seen down in Cornwall. You know, they've, they have, yeah, that, that, the, whatever it is, whatever, the, it's bolted now. They're gone. They're out there. Um, and I think now we just need to work on education. We need to work on communication because there are still people who are frightened of the idea of, of having you know, uh, beavers destroying all their fish, you know, oh, anyway, um, herbivores, and uh, still people worried about what they're going to get you know, the cause flooding, but they don't, they actually stop flooding. They slow the transition of water from high, you know, high uplands down to the lowlands. They actually, and, and having that slow transfer of water means, I mean, already, there is evidence to show that they've reduced flooding in parts of the, the UK where they've been released. We do need a sensible conversation about how we manage beaver populations when they do cause problems. And if they do invade, I mean, that's uh, totally the wrong use of the word, sorry. Uh, when they move into areas uh, which are uh, uh, good agricultural land, um, we need to find a way around it. But actually, you know what, they got, whilst they're a different genus, the beavers in America, they've got extremely well um, worked out ways of dealing with beavers. Um, um, ben Goldfarb wrote a brilliant book about beavers um, it, for the American experience. And actually they got beavers all across continental Europe. They've had them there for a lot longer, yeah, in, a, in abundance than we have. And they've worked out ways of coexistence. These things can be done if we can have a non-outrage, non-shrill argument, uh, discussion rather about these things. We just sit down and go, okay, what are the facts? What can we do to, to stop things happening which are going to upset people and um and how do we ensure that people understand the, the the true value of their presence in the ecosystem no i think you're right i mean i'm um because I'm, I'm quite involved with fish do a lot of work with fish so it's it's interesting to hear that and yeah i, I get it a lot from uh, angling sides who are not overly keen on beavers and it's just trying to put all the points across and the facts across about them like you say but yes they're not they're more likely to munch on a carrot than they are on a carp. So I think we'll uh, we'll be fine in that well, sense. The Beaver Trust, the Beaver Trust, for example. I mean, they, they um, Eva Bishop from the Beaver Trust wrote a wrote a chap uh, a chunk of a chapter in the uh, the my new Beaver book, um, and and what she points out is that opposition does tend to melt away when you explain what they do, um, and then, you know the opposition is based simply on a lack of knowledge, and, and that's just a lack of knowledge because we've not been living with beavers for a very long time. Um, you know, I mean, we used to, to kill beavers because uh, 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 for their castorium, for the, um, the secretions of their anal glands, uh, which were considered to be a, a cure-all. Um, I mean, and, and it's utter bollocks. And, and, and in fact, they're not bollocks because they thought they were. Is it vanilla? Um, Is it vanilla or something? Yeah, 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 vanilla used to come from it as well. It's like, yeah. oh, for goodness sake. So we don't, yeah, I mean, that was actually a positive thing, but really it got to the point that anesthetizing and squeezing the uh, the private parts of beavers became quite an expensive way of producing um something that you could just make with the the um, um output of the petrochemical industry or a bunch of plant um and uh, so you had lots of different uses that the beavers bits were put to uh which which are all nonsense and uh, we have i think grown out of uh um beaver fur um which is you know it, it had the most stunning fur i mean it was it was um um, to 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 feel to stroke. I mean, I stroke you know, stroking a beaver coat or a beaver a stuffed beaver. Uh, it is just an extraordinarily amazing uh, um, coat, and um, it is quite possible actually. The, the only reason any beavers left in Europe is because um, of the discovery of the North American beaver colonies populations, um, because it was becoming very expensive to kill the beavers in Europe because there were so few. 
Um, and, and so then they, they, they just go, oh, it's much cheaper just to go across the ocean and uh, slaughter millions of beavers. There's plenty of them there. Yeah. Well, look, before we before we go, if people want to get hold of your books, where's the best place to go? Um, well, your local bookshop, actually. I mean, I've got it, it's uh, I've got a whole bunch of stuff I've written. Um, I, I've written a book called Linescapes, which is sort of sitting behind me, all about habitat fragmentation, which um, is, I think, a really important uh, um, subject for, for all people interested in ecology. The fact that we've created a bunch of linear features in our landscape, which many hedges, ditches, dikes, roads, railways, canals, um, each of these lines um, acts either as an agent of connectivity or an agent of fragmentation for wildlife. And it's not as simple as it may seem. Um, and we can manage these linear features much better for nature. So that was an important um, um, book. I read a book called The Pretty Affair, which remains the only book in print to have endorsements on the cover from both uh, um, 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 Jeanette Winterson, amazing writer, Jeanette Winterson, um, and Anne Widdicombe. Uh, in fact, I think it's the only thing that those two have ever agreed upon. Yeah, that's an eclectic um, pair. Yes, <laughs> I, I read a book called The Beauty and the Beast, uh, uh, which I went and met 15 people a bit like me. Um, and that is, I, I can't tell my wife quite how much fun I had. I had so much fun, but I had to pretend it was really hard work, just you know, traveling around the place, meeting really fascinating, eccentric people uh, and uh, you know, hanging out with, with the, the, you know, the water vole experts and the otter experts and the, the, the you know, robin experts and things. Um, I, I had so much fun. Um, so I, I enjoyed writing about nature and um, I'm, uh, yes, please go find them local bookshops. If you, if you want to, to, to log on to the, those large uh, um, companies which don't pay their tax. Um, I, I don't judge. I really can't judge because um, I, yeah, it can be cheaper, but you will support people nicely doing it locally. And um, if, if you want to get in touch with me and ask for more details about these books, at Hedgehog Hugh is my, um, is my uh, uh, sort of social media... Is it called a handle? I'm not sure. A name? Uh, yeah, tw Twitter handle. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. So, but on sort of Instagram and everywhere else like that. So, uh, but um, and if if you drop me a note and send me a stamp stressed envelope, I can send you a signed book plate um, because I'm just kind like that. <laughs> there you go. Well, look, Hugh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure to waffle about hedgehogs for 50 <laughs> minutes or so. So, thanks for joining me. Absolute, absolute delight. Thanks a lot, Jack. Cheers. That was Hugh Warwick putting the world to rights about hedgehogs. Next week, we have Richard Pierce on the podcast, who's worked in all manner of different ways with British sharks, as we discuss, are there great white sharks off the British coast? Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded, and the Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. If you'd like to watch any of these, we upload select podcasts to YouTube as well, and that's at Wildlife Exposed TV, where you can watch and see my face and the guest face as well at your own peril. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>